This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. You would have seen in our Bible reading that this is the conversion of Paul. Uh, he's known here as Saul of Tarsus, uh, but we more commonly call him uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, the one responsible for so many letters in the New Testament. So arguably, we have in our account the most important conversion in all of church history, because this is the one responsible for so much of the New Testament, and <clears throat> through that New Testament, so much, uh, so many people are being converted, uh, notable greats like Augustine, uh, through a passage in Romans, uh, one of the greatest thinkers of the Western world became a Christian, and the impact he made, uh, Luther himself also, uh, through the book of Romans, uh, became a Christian, and we know the impact he made. So, arguably, uh, one of the most, if not the most, important conversion in church history. Uh, we have recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. But the question is why? Why has uh, Luke told us of this conversion here? Well, we must remember where we are in Acts. So if you refer back to the contents page, the contents page being chapter 1, verse 8, it is that the Lord Jesus has commanded his disciples to bring the gospel, to preach and witness to him in Jerusalem, and then next, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Now where we are in Acts <clears throat> is that we have finished chapter 2. Judea and Samaria have been brought the gospel. And so the remaining chapter, if you like, which is uh, a lot of it, is the biggest chapter, is how the gospel will get to the ends of the earth. And this man, who is at the present moment in our story, a persecutor of the church, is the one that the risen Lord Jesus will use as his chosen instrument to bring that gospel to the ends of the earth. So this is where we are in Acts, and this is why we are told about Saul's conversion. So let's go to the beginning, uh, where we meet the hardened persecutor. So we meet him in chapter 9, verse 1, and we are told he was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he goes to the high priest, and this is the high priest, obviously, in Jerusalem, and he's asking for letters, asking for documents, so that he can go to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any Christians in Damascus, he would have the authority from the high priest to bring them. And you see that uh, whether it's men or women, he might bring them back to Jerusalem as prisoners. Now, the question that we need to be clear about is why? Why? is Paul so against these Christians? Like, what wrong have they done? Have they, you know, disrupted the peace, this and that? Now, you must understand what the Christians were proclaiming. The Christians were pointing to Jesus, someone who was crucified, and ascribing worship to this Jesus. So for Paul, that is blasphemy. That is insulting God. Because he knows from the Old Testament that someone who is hung on a tree is clearly under God's curse. 
So how can these Jews, how can these people ascribe worth, ascribe worship to someone that was hung on a tree, someone that was clearly under God's curse? How, how can they say that this one is the promised king? And so they are blaspheming against God. And so Paul, in his zeal for God, uh, wants to snuff out this uh, before it spreads. And so he's done what he could in Jerusalem, and not satisfied with that, he is going to Damascus to weed out the Christians who are there. Now, as he is on his way to Damascus, you might imagine him all important with his uh, friends, uh, most likely the temple police, accompanying him so that they can uh, bring these people back as prisoners. And we are told in verse 4, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now when you or I walking along and we meet a bright light, because we are from the UFO Hollywood generation, we might think, is this aliens, you know, something like that. But uh, Saul, Saul is steeped in the language and in the stories of the Old Testament. So when he meets and sees a bright light, there is only one thing he's thinking of. God is present. And if not God, at least someone who is representing God. He is uh, in the presence of a heavenly being. And so you can imagine Paul walking there and we are told in another account that it is noon. Okay, So at the point in the day when it is brightest, Paul is struck to the ground with a light that is even brighter than the noonday sun. And in the Old Testament, when God calls out to his uh, calls out to the people, it's always Abraham, Abraham, or Moses, Moses. And what does Saul hear? He hears Saul, Saul. So without any doubt, Saul knows that he is meeting someone, the heavenly being, if not God Himself. Saul, Saul. But the next part leaves him confused. Because that heavenly being says, why do you persecute me? Persecute? Persecute you? Who, who are you, Lord? That's his next question. And the answer, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, there are no words uh, I could use to try and convey to you how shocked how shocked Paul must be. Because full of zeal, full of devotion to God, Paul is on his way to Damascus. He is uh, trying to weed out these Christians who are uh, you know, worshipping this Jesus who, who was crucified, who was cursed on a tree by God. And it turns out that this heavenly being is Jesus, is the Lord Jesus and this heavenly being says, you are persecuting me. And I think we cannot imagine the shock that Paul must have been in. But there is a greater shock that remains for Saul. Because what does Jesus say next? Even though you are persecuting me, 
the next instruction the Lord Jesus gives is now get up. Now, do you know what's the significance of that? Saul has been struck to the ground. Saul has just been informed that all your actions, your persecuting, your you know, approving of Stephen's death, your you know, dragging these Christians off into jail, you know, separating you know, uh, husbands and wives, you know, separating children from their parents, throwing them in prison, all these tears, all this heartache that you have caused, you're persecuting me, you're persecuting my people. This heavenly being, this Lord says to Saul, but the next instruction is, get up. Now get up. Saul, in spite of his persecution against the Lord Jesus, he has been spared. He's not being punished, he's not been you know, annihilated, he's not been destroyed, he has been spared. Now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And then we are told in verse 7 that the man travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Now we are told this because Luke wants to affirm to us that what Saul experienced was something objective. It wasn't, you know, Saul because he, you know, traveling too hard, he was uh, lack of sleep, and so he hallucinated. No, no, this actually happened in time, space, in history. It actually happened. But the other companions with Saul were prevented from hearing exactly what the Lord Jesus said, and they were prevented from seeing the Lord Jesus. They only saw the bright light, but they didn't see the Lord Jesus. And they didn't hear what he said. But they did hear something happening, and they did see that bright light. So it was something objective. So why was it that um, the traveling companions did not see and did not hear what Saul heard? Well, we'll answer that when we turn to uh, the next vision that we are told in this passage. And we are brought to Damascus in verse 20 where there's a disciple, uh, verse 10, sorry, there's a disciple named Ananias. And in a double vision, you know, Saul has a vision and Ananias also has a vision. The Lord calls to Ananias. And as an obedient Christian, he goes, Yes, Lord. And he's given this instruction. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Saul of Tarsus. And he's praying because in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Right, very simple instructions, right? Just you know, go to this street, go to the house of this man named Judas, and inside you, know, you will see uh, another man called Saul of Tarsus. But at that piece of information, uh, Ananias is startled. Ananias is going, Lord! I have heard many reports about this man and all that he has done. So essentially, the Lord Jesus says, go. But Ananias says, no, Lord, this Saul of Tarsus, don't you know? We, we are here cowering in fear because we've heard that he has got letters you know, from uh, Jerusalem. We've heard all the harm he has done and, and, and he's on his way here and he's going to arrest you know, all your people, all who call on your name. The Lord says go, but Ananias says no. Well, you might say to me, hey, come on, lah. 
you know, can, can't you be a bit more understanding of uh, Ananias? Of course he's in fear. He's heard all the harm, all the persecution this Saul of Tarsus has done. Yes, yes, of course he's afraid. And the question is not, you know, is it right, is it understandable that he's afraid? The question is, who should he be afraid of? Should he be afraid of Saul of Tarsus? Or should he be afraid of this one who is speaking to him, whose glory alone, just the slightest glimpse of it, would floor someone to the ground? Of course, Ananias should fear the Lord. But the Lord is patient and the Lord says to him, verse 15, No, go. I repeat, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So we're being informed here that the Saul of Tarsus is not just being converted. What we are reading of is, yes, his conversion account, how he goes from being a persecutor, someone against the Lord Jesus, to now one who will follow and obey and pledge allegiance to the Lord Jesus. We're not only told of his conversion account, we are also told of his commissioning. Commissioning as a messenger. And in fact, we know from Paul's own writings that this is his commissioning as an apostle. So that is the reason why only Saul sees the resurrected Lord speaking to him. Because as credential to be an apostle, you have to witness for yourself, with your own eyes, the resurrected Lord. And that's why his traveling companions did not see that. Only Saul, because he is being commissioned as an apostle, that's why he sees and he hears directly from the resurrected Lord. Ananias goes, verse 17, and he goes to the house and he sees Saul and goes up to Saul, places his hand on Saul who is blind and he says these words, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. So can you imagine Saul, he's been struck down by light, He's blind for the last three days and, you know, like, I mean, he's, he's, what is he thinking? What is he uh, meditating in his heart? He is there in the room and the first Christian he meets puts his hand, I imagine, gently on him. And the first words he hears from a fellow Christian is the word brother. Brother Saul. I mean, can you imagine what that would have meant for Saul? You know, knowing all that he has done against Christians, all the heartache, all the suffering he has put Christians through. And the first Christian he meets since, uh, you know, being struck blind, he hears the word brother. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And at that point, Saul regains his sight, and after taking some food, he regains his strength. And he spends several days in Damascus with the disciples. And the question I want to ask at this point is, why? Why 
is Saul, the risen Lord Jesus' chosen instrument. Right, you see that. That's what uh, Jesus says in verse 15. This man is my chosen instrument. Why choose an instrument like Saul? Well, you know that there are many things in uh, Saul's favor in terms of his background, in terms of the privileges he has. So, you know, as a, a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, as someone who is fluent in Hebrew, and most likely Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and most likely Latin as well. You know, that's how learned Saul was. He studied under the uh, most famous rabbi in that time, the rabbi uh, Gamaliel. And he was told that when Gamaliel passed away, uh, other rabbis, the other priests wrote of him, ah, a great light has gone out from Israel. See, that's how highly they thought of uh, Gamaliel. So he studied under the best. He was uh, a learned uh, you know, student of the Old Testament. You know, very likely could have memorized large parts of the Old Testament. And Saul had in his favor as well the fact that he was a Roman citizen. You know, so you could say, yes, there's all these reasons, you know, would have caused the Lord Jesus to choose Saul as his chosen instrument. You know, he's fluent in all these languages. You know, he, he's someone that can bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. But I think there is uh, one other reason for why Saul would be a good chosen instrument, why the Lord Jesus chose him. Because this Saul was a persecutor. Saul did not begin life, uh, you know, neutral to Jesus. And then hearing about Jesus, you know, immediately warming to him and immediately, uh, you know, seeing, ah, yes, yes, there must be something true about this. No, Saul began life when he heard about Jesus against, hostile. And as hostile as you could possibly get. I mean, he was approving of the, the, the stoning of Stephen. He was himself active, proactive in persecuting Christians, you know, snuffing this religion out before it could get started. This was a man who was so against the Lord Jesus. Such that when he is brought to this point, when he is brought low, knowing that all that he deserves for his persecution against Christian, his, his hostility against the Lord Jesus. What he really deserves would be the Lord Jesus' wrath. That's what he knows he deserves. But instead of getting wrath, he receives grace. So this Saul of Tarsus is the risen Lord Jesus' chosen instrument because in Saul, he would personally have come to see and experience for himself the extent of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this is what he is being commissioned to preach. He's not going to, you know, God's historic people. You know, Jews who have always, you know, obeyed the law, have always worshipped God, and this is just that, you know, natural next step. Ah, God has now come in human form, in Lord Jesus. This is how, you know, the uh, salvation plan is progressing. And so, you know, you recognize that and then you follow. No, he's talking to, he's going to be preaching to Gentiles who have been worshipping other gods, 
who have been engaged in pagan practices. He has to go to them and he therefore himself must know the great extent of God's grace because he's going to be preaching to them. Yes, this grace is enough to save even you. Yes, this gospel is for even you. That's why this man is the chosen instrument. And so we see in the next section, in verse 20, something really astounding, right? At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. At once. Okay, the question that we're going to ask uh, before we end is, where did Paul learn it? Where did he learn such that you know, at once he could begin preaching Jesus as Christ? I mean, ETCA is not set up yet, so obviously he didn't learn it there. You know, how did Paul, you know, persecutor, now he's regained his sight, and then at once he's going preaching in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, so we're going to answer that question before we end today. But uh, before uh, we do that, I want to look with you to how when, in verse 26, Saul of Tarsus comes to Jerusalem, and very naturally he tries to join the disciples, and obviously, very understandably, they are all afraid of him. I mean, this was the one that just took their father, you know, took their brother, thrown them in prison. And they were all afraid, not believing that he was really a disciple. I mean, could this be a trick? Could this be, you know, uh, Saul's next stage of his plan to infiltrate, find out who the leaders are, you know, find out who, you know, where the rest of the Christians are hiding. And then one fell swoop, dragged them off to prison. How could they know? But in verse 27, we are told, Barnabas. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Now, we've met Barnabas before. Barnabas is the one who is uh, Mr. Generous because he sold property and gave all of it to help the poor in Jerusalem. And because he was so encouraging, the disciples had a nickname for him. Oh, yes, you're Mr. Generous, but I think you're more Mr. Encouragement. Okay, which is what his, uh, what Barnabas means, you know, son of encouragement. So uh, Mr. Encouragement lifts up to his name and he is convinced that Saul is a true disciple and he brings Saul and brings him to the apostles and he relates how Saul, on his journey, himself had seen the resurrected Lord. And the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas vouches for Saul, and Saul is now uh, trusted, and he continues uh, preaching in Jerusalem. And we are told, as the Lord Jesus had predicted, this one, my chosen instrument, he will bring my name to the Gentiles, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so true to the fact, he preaches in Damascus, and they want to kill him. He goes to Jerusalem, he preaches in Jerusalem, and the Jews also want to kill him. So he is sent off uh, to Caesarea and sent off to Tarsus. So what the Lord Jesus says about Saul comes true. He preaches, and 
he suffers for it. The one who was, you know, meeting out, throwing out persecution and suffering is now the one who is receiving persecution and suffering for the name that he has believed in, the risen Lord Jesus. And the question we uh, promise you that we will try and answer is, how is it that right at the beginning, right after his <coughs> conversion and his commissioning, Saul is able to go into the synagogue and preach Jesus is the Son of God? Well, I think uh, there's a few ways to explain it. Uh, number one, he would have heard the preaching of Stephen. He would have heard the preaching of the apostles. Of, obviously, at the time, he would not have believed it. In fact, he was so against it that he was going to do everything in his power to try and snuff it out. But he did hear the preaching. Uh, but I think more than just that would have been his own Damascus Road experience. Because on the road to Damascus, he sees for himself the risen Lord Jesus. And so it would have taken him more than just uh, an instant. But, you know, three days he was blind. Three days he did not eat. He did not, you know, uh, he, was, he was spending his time, I'm sure, you know, meditating, thinking, and really, really pondering the events of what has happened to him. And because Saul is so steeped and so learned in the Old Testament, and because Saul is, you know, a, a brilliant man, I think very quickly he would have put two and two together, the, the connections would have been made. Yes, Jesus was crucified. And being hung on that tree, being hung on that piece of wood, would mean that he is under God's curse. But there, on the road to Damascus, he sees the risen Lord Jesus himself, which means he must not be cursed because he, if he was truly cursed, then he should remain on that tree. He should not be resurrected. But the fact that he's resurrected means that he is being vindicated by God in the most uh, glorious and demonstrable way. God is now saying, yes, this one does not deserve to be cursed. This one does not deserve to die. This one is vindicated in the highest possible way, now alive and now, you know, emanating from him, heavenly light. So if he is not cursed, then what was he suffering on that tree if it wasn't his curse? And then how is it that I, persecuting him, persecuting his people, how is it I can now be asked to get up? How can I now be you know, set free? How can I now be given this commission? Someone must have taken my guilt, my curse for me. And that someone must be Jesus. When he was hung on that cross, yes, he was cursed, but he was not cursed because of his own sin. He was hung on a tree, facing the curse, bearing the curse for his people. He himself must not be cursed because he is standing risen right there before my eyes. And so if he is the one who has borne our curse, then it means the righteousness that I'm trying to gain in obeying the law, it must mean that is a dead end road. 
Because if he has borne the curse, that means the only way to attain righteousness must be through him. That's why he can let me go. That's why he can ask me to, be, to, to, to get up and give me this commission. Because you see, Saul on the road to Damascus, he is going there to persecute Christians and he's going there as the expression of his devotion to the law, as his devotion to God. And if this highest devotion to the law, devotion to God, could not get him righteousness, then the law is a dead end. And the only hope, the only solution must be in this grace that I have experienced because the one who was cursed bore my curse for me. So what should we learn at the end of all this? Some people, after you know, talking through the whole of Acts chapter 9, make the point, if even someone like Saul such a hardened persecutor, could be saved, then it means that anyone can be saved. Right? So that's the, that's the, the common um, application I hear uh, when I hear sermons of this passage. If even Saul could be saved, then it means that, you know, that a colleague of yours, that family member of yours, you know, who at this moment is so hardened, you know, he's not beyond hope. She's not beyond hope. Because if even Saul can be saved, then, then they can also be saved. Um, I think it's tempting to think that way. And to one sense, it's true. But I don't think that's the way we should go about applying this passage. I think that's not the best way. Because, yes, obviously this hardened persecutor, so against Christians, yes, he can be saved. But... Just because he is saved has no bearing on your colleague, has no bearing on that you know, very hard-hearted uh, family member of yours. There could be many reasons why God would want to save this hardened person that has nothing to do with your colleague or your family member. Do you see what I mean? But to the extent that Saul, this hardened persecutor, now turned into Christianity's most fearless and bold proclaimer of the gospel. Yes, this, the fact that he can be turned around in this way, he's being turned around because he is the risen Lord Jesus' chosen instrument to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. Because the Lord Jesus has a plan has a purpose for this gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And because the Lord Jesus has that plan, has that purpose, that's why your work colleague, that's why that hardened uh, family member of yours, that's why there is that chance for them to be saved, because the Lord Jesus has a purpose, His saving purpose, for this gospel to go even to the ends of the earth. So, that's us. Gentiles, Gentiles who have no place, we have no standing, there's no right for us to be in God's story. You know, to, to you know, ask for grace or ask to be included. But because His purpose is that it goes out, that He saves many 
from every tribe and language and tongue and people group. Because it is the risen Lord Jesus' purpose to do that. That's why whoever you are, whatever you have done, there is hope. There is grace enough for you and your work colleague and your family member to be saved. Because the gospel is that great. May God help us to believe that. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.